The Get This Podcast is brought to you by my WordPress web development agency brand, K2 Creative. You can visit getthispodcast.com slash K and the numeral two, that's getthispodcast.com slash K2, and click book a discussion for a free 30-minute discussion on anything related to WordPress. I'll be happy to help. Whether you need a new website or you have an existing site, you're not happy with the speed, you're not happy with the security, you need plugins updated, you're having issues, your developer ran off to Costa Rica, you don't know where to find him or her, we can help. My team builds websites that drive millions of page views a year. We can help with membership, e-commerce. If it's in WordPress, we can make it happen. Visit getthispodcast.com slash K2 and click the book a discussion link and I'll be happy to help with whatever you need in WordPress. Hey everybody, this is Kevin Kautzman with a podcast, Get This, the show about things people love. It's October 1st, 2019, the foul year of our Lord, 2019, uh, and I'm coming to you from upstate Manhattan, Washington Heights, uh, joined today by a very good friend of mine, wonderful writer, very talented person, Aaron Squire. Aaron, how are you? Doing well. Just enjoying this very balmy Tuesday. Balmy, I haven't even been able to get outside yet, so I'll take your word for it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out later. i got to run to Midtown for this uh, experimental theater writing workshop, salon type thing. Uh, theater? Uh, it's, it's a group called the Experimental Theater Writing Workshop, and this is pertinent because I believe this is what we're going to talk about today, Aaron. Uh, correct? What, what is, what's the thing that you love that you want to talk about on Get This? I love writing. In various forms, TV, film, and theater, and I love uh, collaborating. This emphasis on collaboration is really fascinating to me. I was at another one of these artists get-togethers. It sounds like all I do is go to artist salons, <laughs> but I was at one last night uh, up here in Washington Heights that this church group puts on. Must have been forty people there. And uh, do you know who? Do you know Peter Wexler, Aaron? He's a designer, but I don't. I've never met this person. Yeah, he's quite. I think he's quite a famous uh, set designer, and he showed us a little doodle that he did for Jackie Kennedy, I presume, back in the '60s. That it ended up on the front page of the New York Times. Anyway, it was really, really cool. He spoke, um, and then uh, another fellow spoke. He does um, album covers, and I guess he worked with Pearl Jam or whatnot. Won a Grammy at some point. His name escapes me. And then there was another fellow who was a football player for the Cleveland Browns, so Pacific Islander, and he crossed over to become an operatic tenor. And he sang a piece of music, uh, and it was just just a wild night. Uh, yeah, in any event, it's just all salons all the time right now. And uh, yeah, you you would have fit right in there, Orrin. Well, I would have loved to hear the Samoan story. There There is a lack of baritones in the opera right now so they're pulling from everywhere they can get because mostly um big guys aren't singing when they do they go into pop music well this fellow like yeah, this fellow he was from the kingdom of tonga and 
he, I don't know if that is Simone or not. I'm, I'm woefully ignorant and I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because they were really doing a very particular pronunciation, but it's something like Tua Papa or something like that. And, uh, just a lovely man and, uh, beautiful to hear, but the, the, the spirit of the conversation was about inspiration, right? And collaboration came up frequently. Uh, all three of these artists can't really perform without collaboration involved. Uh, you know, Mr. Wexler, draws from scripts and from other other artists, you know, for the theater, for ballet, et cetera, uh, for opera. Um, the the graphic artist pulls from albums that inspire him, you know, that, that he, he gets handed. And uh, and then obviously the the nobody performs in opera alone. <laughs> so what's your what's your take on on collaboration or and what are your I know you you have a lot of insights. Well, the fields we're talking about are performative writing. Uh, this, this isn't like poetry or novels where you can do it pretty much on your own. And I know a few people who were very good playwrights, uh, but they just couldn't get into the spirit of collaboration or they couldn't seem to master it. And I know at least one of them who's now writing short stories and novels. And there's nothing wrong if you can't collaborate with your writing or can't find a group to be with or don't know how to be in flow with other people. But for theater, for TV and film, uh, you kind of have those. That's the foundation. You can't do everything by yourself there. So it's a weird form where you're both extremely isolated during long stretches of time. And then you're surrounded by people during these short bursts. And then it goes up before audience that judges you and judges your work and tries to assess who you are as a person based upon this. Uh, and you're sort of revealing your soul in this way that a novelist or a short story writer doesn't have to do. And so it, you have to be able to balance two sides. If you're too uh, jovial and cordial and like to party, it becomes kind of difficult to write. And if you are too too much about being isolated, then the uh, rehearsal part, part is excruciating. And so I think in this field that we're in, we sort of have to have both minds at the same time the mind of a producer and then the mind of a hermit and they sort of, and knowing when to switch off between one and the other. I know right now working on a, a few musicals and uh, some TV episodes and some play commissions and I'm in multiple conversations with producers, writers, uh, directors and production people across many different fields. So, uh, that's just the nature of the business. And when I started doing this, I discovered that if you left things open to the imagination of others, then you wrote them into your collaborative project. When I would write things and sort of spell out every single element that I wanted, not only was it difficult to get people on board, but the project, even if it went my way, wasn't that interesting because my imagination isn't as great as 10 people's. Uh, and I think the best theater work incorporates and gives people a hint of uh, inspiration so they go home and find uh, what taps into their memory and what taps into their soul and spirit. I remember uh, I was at New School and we had to do rep plays. And I had a lot of plays in the repertory season. And so I had to go to these production meetings. And production meetings are when you get a lot of your rewriting in and know the direction of your show. The problem is a lot of playwrights these days don't get that many opportunities to get produced. 
And so you have these long stretches where you're just sitting around, then you're in a production meeting with designers who have a very different mindset and the director and all these different departments. And so I think one of the best things about going to new school is that I had, it wasn't six, it might've been like seven, seven production meetings for seven different plays over like three or four months. Wow. So after the second or third time, you're like, all right, let's do this. And I know what the designer and you just get in rhythm of how to speak to people. So I would rewrite the stage directions to inspire the designer who was uh, working on the set, the production designer. And I remember I had a scene that was taking place in a hotel room. And I just wrote something to the effect, I'm badly paraphrasing myself, because this is over 10 years ago. I said, the room looks like a tuxedo, neat. And the production designer was like, I got it. I nice. didn't have to say, like, there's a chair downstage tilted 90 degrees to the left. There's an elegant coffee table. Right, right. The I Eugene O'Neill four-page intro. Yeah, those awful, awful intros where he describes everything and you, like, want to shoot yourself. It was just... That's at the end of the play. Sentences, one line, yeah. <laughs> or take some heroin and overdose. It's right. just tuxedo, neat. And now I'm doing that now, and people love that in... Uh, in TV especially, where you can describe something in a sentence and it describes the world, then they go off on their own and come back with this material. Um, and I got some of the best work doing that by just letting people wander with their imagination and come back with these different designs, different proposals. And sometimes that would cause me to rewrite the script. Um, for Seattle Public Theater, I was up for the Emerald Prize and it was me and like 50 other people who were nominated. I didn't really think I was going to get it because there were a lot of famous people with credits and more acclaim that were on that list. But I still wrote out my proposal, then I was a semi-finalist, then I was a finalist, uh, and that's when I knew, oh, this could be real, because it's only me and four other people. So I did research on the uh, board and on Seattle Public Theater, and I realized that the artistic director of the theater is a stage director. So I began writing my more full-length proposal with script sample, with how would I talk to a director? What would get a director excited? And so in my description, I made it very visual. I made it like, here's what, here's how the director's orchestrating this. It's like a symphony. And I, you bring together all these elements and they're overlapping scenes and you're like creating music through dialogue. And the play was selected. A year later, year or two later, they were nominating a second person I, I helped out with the nomination process mm -hmm. and someone asked for advice and I told them the people you're pitching to are directors. Keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. What will get them excited about this as a director, not as a writer. And so you know who your audience is. Some theaters are run by artistic directors who come from admin. What gets them excited? Mm -hmm. Probably like one person shows, but like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm from it from a different field some people come from the producer field so i'm always like what would get people excited about this idea hmm. that would tap into their imagination right that's fascinating you have to get so much buy-in particularly i mean i know theater uh, better than than film and television at this point but i presume it's the same in in film and television yeah, yeah. you read a robert and michelle king script or dan fogelman script or shonda Rhimes script and it's written in the shorthand way that gets you excited about being on the team. Now, you read a John Ridley script. John Ridley is a writer first who was now directing his own stuff for a Showtime series. 
And so he has six paragraph descriptions of stuff because he's directing it. Mm-hmm. He's right. in charge of all the elements. So he knows what he wants, he wants it to look like and he's trying to remember it for later. So he's telling himself, there's this over here. She's dressed like this. There's and and you read it and as someone not used to that, it's like ridiculous. Yeah. But you realize like, oh, he's doing that for himself and for his very specific team that's gonna know, no, this is what he wants. This is Stanley Kubrick specific. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, and this is that's obviously a bit of a luxury. Not everyone gets to be an auteur uh at any point in their career. So if you can get it, take it. It's just a reminder that the scripts are a blueprint, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Unlike uh well, I don't think there's anything that's perfect. Even a novel. Well, a novel you can get down like Flaubert where you describe like every single element. And it's not really a blueprint. You're painting the world with your words. Right. And with uh, screenwriting and a lot of playwriting, it's sort of like uh, taking a flashlight and waving it around in a dark room. Mm. Wherever the flashlight goes is where you're putting the attention of the reader. So you can't light up the entire room all at the same time. Uh, in, on the script, you have to give hints of it, right? And then the production team fills in the dark space around where the flashlight is shining. Absolutely right. I'm thinking about my most recent play and the script and how how much room there is. You want to leave that room in the script. I think it's the sign of an amateurish writer. I think we would consider it to be amateurish to overspell every single thing. That includes in the dialogue. You know, you don't want, you want there to be subtext. You want there to be air and room. And it makes me think of Pinter. You can almost go too far <laughs> sometimes. Like, what, what on earth is happening? But that's the fun. That's why it's called a play, right? You get to. And people love puzzles. They puzzles. Something or mm-hmm. what is it called? The lost genre of TV, secret box or magic box, where it's like there's a secret within a secret, within a secret. Right. So watch it, even though you have a feeling that they probably don't have an end to this and satisfying for the next secret or the next reveal. Right, right. Interesting. What would be a good example of that? Maybe Twin Peaks? Twin Peaks, uh, I'm just going to use my experience, the pilot episode of This Is Us. Mm. You're watching it, you're watching it. It's a very subtle secret box. You're watching family, and it lulls you into this sense of uh, safety and warmth. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, it's like, oh, we're in the 70s. And <laughs> seeing in the present tense are their children. Ah. Watching these two stories at the same time. Right. So you go like, okay, now what's the connection between these babies that were just born and these old-ass 36-year-old adults who are having these problems? We'll see. That's the show. And then you go forward. But the trick is you're watching and you're like, what? What's going on? And like, it's, you don't notice that they're in the 70s. You only get little hints of it. And then when you look back at it, you go, of course they're in the 70s. Well, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a little hipsterish. I guess that's just a look. Uh, and then when the, the fireman lights up a cigarette in the hotel, you at, in the hospital, you go like, oh, this is not of this world. Uh, and it's a very subtle thing where you go like, it's a beautiful, subtle clue that leads to the epiphany. No one has to scream at the at the TV screen or at the uh, character, man. Man, I can't believe it's 1975. Right. <laughs> like, no one has to do that. He lights a cigarette right. and pan up and you see the Ayatollah Khomeini on the screen and the Iran-Contra thing. You realize it's 1979. Oh. Right. 
Right. Isn't it the case? This is stating the obvious, I think. But as soon as the the ball drops for the, for a plot and it's clear what's happening, there better be a bunch of other balls in the air or it has Absolutely. to set up. That's it, right? The balls have to stay in the air. The audience isn't stupid. They want something to figure out. Yeah. I mean, for pitch, the other thing I read at that same time, the, the twist in the pilot was, oh, her father's dead. She's been talking to her father. Oh, I see. Um, the, the issue is, okay, what's the next twist then? Mm-hmm. Father, you can't do that twice. Now the father's back. You know, it's just his ghost. Well, this is the thing with something like Twin Peaks, right? Why it seemed to jump the shark so hard back in back in network days. You know, we we discover who killed Laura Palmer. No spoilers. I'm not going to give anything away. If you haven't seen it, you should watch Twin Peaks. If you haven't seen it, uh, and then what? Where do you go? And some some shows figure that out. Others, the franchise kind of withers on the vine. Uh, but not every show has that same for, arc. For movies, you can do that. All you need is one or two twists, and then you're out. Like the sixth <laughs> sense. I'm gone. You're dead. Boom. Right? <laughs> oh, for TV, though, you can sell an idea like that, and you get greenlit, and people will order a whole season, and then you got to put up or shut up because it's like, okay, well, that's the pilot. What else is going to happen? I think this is – got to be like, ooh. And so a lot of shows yeah. you see, they're sold by very charismatic uh, salesmen. And people who know how to pitch something and people who know how to do that initial twist. And then you need a very good room to sort of build out the other things you're going to see later on. Otherwise, a lot of shows, that's why they have one season and they're done. Or people sort of fritter away from it after a while after they figure out what the twist is or what the reveal is. This is part of the appeal of the the anthology series now, right? Yeah. I think. You can just switch it up. And it plays into the strength of Ryan Murphy because – People have told me that second seasons aren't his strength. Mm. So the anthology is like, well, we're never going to have a second season. We'll <laughs> use home actors and we'll just pop around. Yeah. And the best appetizer of every single thing. And then you'll just start new beginning, new beginning. And then there's, but there's tonal consistency and you kind of become attached to the brand. It's quite smart. Yeah, I think we're still in a golden age of television. I don't think it's over, and I think it's just going to get better and better. And we're going to – the word television, I think, at some point may have to change because it is what we're watching really television anymore. I don't know. I think we keep calling it television because there's history. Uh, What a wonderful time to be alive and to to be – well, and, of course, you you have proper credits. Tell people a little bit about your background in terms of television, Arn. Uh, Right now, I am – uh, producer on Evil and The Good Fight. Before that, I was uh, on The Good Fight the last two seasons. Then I was on the first season of This Is Us. And then I was on the one and only season of Brain Dead as a staff writer. And that was my first job in 2015, 2016. So, you know, four or five years of experience. Not a huge amount, but I've been fortunate to work on um, good quality shows with decent people, high quality, intelligent hardworking uh, and no crazy. So I have to knock on wood for that. And that may not always be a guarantee uh, as we go as if I'm lucky enough to continue working in this field that it will be mostly drama free and with talented people who aren't crazy. And that includes the actors too, because I've heard stories about like terrible actors. I mean, now we can talk about Kevin Spacey, but I heard stories years ago about Kevin yeah, Spacey. Yeah, me too. People who are like crazy, who I'm not going to name, 
Um, and you read about them or you hear about it through the grapevine. You're like, oh, my God, what would I do if I had to, like, beg the star to come out of the trailer every day to stop them from, like, crying or going on a fit or all these diva activities that drain you? Uh, and at least it doesn't appear like I'm seeing that. Who knows? Maybe people are hiding stuff from me. I remember um, for This Is Us, there was some rumor that uh, Mandy Moore was being a diva and counting her lines, which was hilarious because Mandy Moore was the nicest person or was the nicest person in the world, at least when I met her, and would come in and film just random stuff for like writers to mess around with. But people want drama, so they created this rumor of like, she's counting her lines and she's not happy, which... You know, uh, I guess sells People magazine, but it isn't true at all. Uh, but people sort of expect bad behavior from successful uh, stars and from successful shows. So it's a nice change of pace when you both have a successful show and people are acting still like they are striving and trying to achieve something. That's fantastic. So let's tell people a little bit, people who don't know your background so much, uh, how did you arrive and maybe let's go way back. Uh, do you have a recollection as per when you decided or realized, hey, I'm a writer. This is what I want to do? Well, write in my journal. I didn't think anything of it because no one in my family was a professional writer. But in high school, I was uh, doing a lot of sports, uh, football, wrestling, uh, and then a debate. And I was captain of all three. So I knew the local newspaper reporters. And... A few of them would talk to me, and one in particular, Larry Bluestein, uh, said I could hang out with him at uh, during fifth and sixth period after lunch, and that became my internship because I wanted one so I could get out of school, relax for a little bit, yeah, and then yeah. get ready for practice or have some flexibility rather than being in a class that isn't going to help me. Sure. So I started interning at the newspaper, uh, wrote something, uh, it got some attention. I was able to negotiate my own salary. At the time, that newspaper happened to split into two and then three newspapers. And then I started working for two online zines. So by the time I graduated, I was working for five publications, uh, three print and two online magazines. I went to Northwestern thinking, great, I'm going to be a reporter. And by accident, I got put in the radio, TV, and film program in the School of Speech. But people said, don't leave. That's actually a happy accident because film is very hard to get into. And Medill is not because Medill is the most difficult journalism school in the country. So mm. people are always quitting. Mm. People who were like editor of their school newspaper and think they're going to be the next Walter Cronkite come into Northwestern and Medill hands them their ass and they run, they run away. Wow. And so they said, you can take all the journalism classes you want because people quit and then stay in film. So I did that. My background being as a reporter, I continued to work. Uh, radio reporter all four years in Northwestern for the newsfeed, interviewing professors, and then during the summer for the Chicago Tribune and Miami Herald. And then during the school year, I would you know, take film classes. And I didn't really know anything about film or TV. Uh, my parents didn't take us to that many movies growing up. Mm. And so it was a true learning experience where I felt like I had to play catch up with people who wanted to be uh, the next Martin Scorsese since they were three. Right. And had right. camera. And I was like, I'm just trying to get the basics down. Mean Street, Rageable, okay, okay, I'm going to go watch <laughs> Wow, that was a fascinating movie. And yeah, I, Raging Bull's pretty good. Yeah, I go to, you know, theater class and be like, huh, this is The Frogs? Okay, like things that other people would roll their I eyes. I could totally on. relate to this. 
100 we're reading Oedipus again. Or right. Reading, we're like, oh, he, he slept with his mother. <laughs> oh, no, it's a spoiler. That's <laughs> talking about the ultimate, like, right. Matchbox uh, trick, our first episode, pilot episode. Right. Where do you go from there, Oedipus? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> There's episode. no no second season for Oedipus, although I think it's part of a trilogy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. It's like uh, the yeah. first uh, anthology. Right. New series. You begin with Oedipus, pilot. He he kills a guy and marries his mother. Right. And you're like, oh, no. And then yeah. he stabs out his eyes. And then it's like, man, we have like eight more episodes to go. Damn, but get in there. <laughs> we'll Yikes. Switch Antigone afterwards. Right, right. And then it'll be great. Yeah. Uh, so Shift the lens. Turn the lens over here. I really like these classes. And I was coming to it with new eyes. Everything was fresh mm. to me. Or some other people, I think, were... Oh, we're learning this again because they right. went to school and theater right. came from the summer. And then we had to focus at Northwestern, so I focused on writing. And I got into the creative writing and the media program the last two years. And so it was TV writing, screenwriting, and playwriting. And I was introduced to playwriting for the first time in my life, and I enjoyed it. I wrote a play when I was in L.A. interning at uh, Village Roach on Warner Brothers, and I submitted it to a theater in the south side of Chicago. They put it up in a workshop. And I was writing these plays, uh, screenplays with people of color that weren't getting traction because no one wanted to see that back then. Mm, mm. Unless it involved like a white savior. Right. I didn't realize that at the time. Ugh. Uh, and so my plays were getting done. And my film stuff, people would say, this is very nice, but this isn't producible. So I gravitated towards the area where I got attention, which was theater. I came back to New York City or came to New York City for grad school primarily to work in theater and to be around theater. Grad school was just an excuse to move here uh, and then write as much as possible, connect with people, be in flow and see if I could do this. Uh, and after new school, I got an agent at Gersh. I got a few deals like movie adaptations for a few indie pictures, got a, got a few productions around the country. Uh, and then things sort of shifted when I started having family, uh, issues with people getting sick. Mm. I went back to Miami for more than a few years and sort of all that stuff fell away as far as the uh, agents and the deals and all the other stuff. I finished a project, but it all just sort of stopped. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it was a very great meditative spiritual time in my life where all the things stopped and I had to look at what I wanted for myself outside of just my career. And I started meditating, uh, converted mm. to Buddhism, Spent a lot of time studying, and I was really, really, I don't want to say happy because I'm a pessimist, so that sounds weird. I was uh, satisfied in a way. I felt whole. Mm. Uh, then around 2011 or 12, my dad's condition stabilized, my mom's condition stabilized, so I figured, well, I might as well try something again. I don't. They don't need me here all the time, so I applied to Juilliard. I got in. Uh, and then I spent the two years there writing scripts again and sort of starting up the engine from scratch. And just, okay, let's get this going, writing scripts. Uh, got an agent again uh, and happened to run into the TV agents who were coming back from London and passing through New York to go to L.A. So I met up with them. They read my stuff. They liked it. And I agreed to go out there for meetings. It worked out perfectly. I was back to writing uh, freelance as a reporter for like the New Republic, uh, Talking Points Memo. And so I had this extra money that I would use to fly out to LA and have these generals. After graduating in 2015, 
I happened to get a meeting with Robert and Michelle King for Brain Dan, and that's how I got the first TV job. Great. If you had to give advice to a younger person who was really trying to dig into this, what's the best advice you would give? I think you have to find your community. You find your community, whatever that is, whether it's it's not just your identity. It can be that. But a more powerful community uh, are the things you actually like. Mm. The genres, the type of movies and films, the type of stories you want to tell. So if it is horror, then you hang out with horror people. If it is sci-fi, you go there. If it's fantasy, you play Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know. Like <laughs> the thing is, you find your group, and it is, is it. Sorry, it isn't always in like conferences. It'll be, it, it'll be in the Dungeons and Dragons group. It'll be in the things that are uh, the activities and hobbies of the people who like your specialty. And then once you're in that community, you get to know people. They'll know someone who knows someone. And you sort of become a master of that community. And you become someone who sort of becomes an expert in not only your identity, but your interest. Hmm. And then you try to get an internship or you go back to school if that's your vehicle. If it's for TV and film, your odds seem to be increased if you're in New York City or L.A. You, you have more of a chance if you are near where the action is. Yeah, I think that's true. And if it's for TV and film, there are maybe five or 600 writers rooms in LA and there are 30 in New York city. Right. So just to give you a sense of where things are. Yeah. And uh, even that is such a small number, uh, even 600. That's so small. And when you think of all the people who want to do this, uh, I think it's important to be realistic about it and to to find joy in the work regardless. I think that's true. Uh, anyway. Now, if you like yeah. theater, you can do New York, L.A., but you can also do Chicago. Mm -hmm. You can also do Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Uh, yep. It's another city that would be good. San Francisco a little bit. So not, not as many theaters, but they have some prestigious theaters there. So if you're in the theater, there there are other avenues you could pursue. Uh, if it's and if it's theater, TV, or film, maybe Chicago, maybe Atlanta. Uh, but really, if it's TV and film, being near these places is major. Finding mentors, finding teachers, and then respecting them, learning from them, not just asking them for jobs or for help, but seeking their expertise. Um, finding people who are your fans to support you and to keep them energized and motivated and to spark their creativity and to spark their interests. So rather than popping up every two years, like some of my friends do saying, Hey, I'm trying to raise money for this. Give me money. Yeah. Right. You kind of go, all right, that's one approach, but I don't think you're going to raise a lot of money. If the only time people see you is when you need something and then you disappear. Yeah, sure. Being part of the community means being, uh, inter interacting with others and being interested in their projects as well. But even if you find someone to give you money, how do you interact with them afterwards? Right. Are they along for the journey or did you just like take their money and then leave? Yeah. Take the money and run. And so like making them excited about it. I remember Pernell, I went to school with Pernell Walker, uh, right after school, new school. Uh, she said, Hey, I'm playing, you know, a lesbian in this short film, can you guys vote for it? 
and it's about lesbians of color. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll vote, I'll vote for that. And I said, hey, we just won something. We're being considered for Netflix. Can you vote for the thing again? And I was like, ugh, okay, fine. <laughs> but really all it required me to do was tap a button. Yeah. But I was like, again, you're asking? And I was like, okay. And I was like, hey, so we're being considered for funding to turn this into a full-length movie. Mm. This is exciting. And then you start, I started seeing the end goal. Even mm. though I was directly involved, I was like, oh, okay. That movie became Pariah. And it launched the career of many people, including the director, uh, who was an NYU student. And I have never met this director before in my life. I repeatedly gave my time and energy and money to it because Purnell was able to spark my interest in it. Even mm -hmm. though I'm not a lesbian. Right. Even though I didn't know anyone except for her and she wasn't the lead role. She was a best friend. Sure. But I was like, oh, you don't see that many black lesbian movies. Right. And this is about coming of age. Yeah, this sounds interesting. And it became an iconic uh, LGBT film. Great. It started off as a short. Yeah. Uh, one of our mutual friends, Hilary Bettis, before I had ever met her, she was doing uh, something on Kickstarter called Bensonhurst. Or mm -hmm. Yeah. I met her before in my life. Yeah. But Hillary's great. The Kickstarter description of the project, it was about race and Bensonhurst. Hasidic Jewish people, black people, it had a certain thing that called out to me. Mm. Out of the thousands of projects and the hundreds that are about race and all these different things, for whatever reason, when Kickstarter first started up, I was like, this project, I don't know why, I'm gravitating towards it. And so I gave money to it. And it was just a short film. There was no prospect of it being expanded, but I felt like, oh, I, I want to contribute to this. And if you make people excited about that, then it's a follow-up, keeping them trailing along. I wonder what happened to Bensonhurst. It wasn't Hillary. She was producing it. She wasn't directing it. But if that director would have followed up like the director Pariah did, mm. what would have happened? That Might have been have, different. That could have been that, that person's Pariah. That could have been that person's launching off point instead of just a short film. Well, and I know your Buddhist practice is very important to you and to all of this. So maybe you could talk briefly about the intersection of Buddhism and this creative life that you lead. Well, this is all a part of the greater reason why I wanted to talk because I told Kevin, I've done these coffee meetings for a few years and I don't mind repeating myself. Generally people ask the same questions. That's fine. But you I mean, do, you mean coffee, if I may interrupt, just to give context, you mean coffee meetings with other writers, people who are aspiring to get into the industry, people who look to you for sort of advice and, and uh, yeah. yeah, as a colleague. Yes. One-on-ones. Advice, and then one-on-one, I'll buy you coffee, yada, yada, yada. And you sit down there and I ask you, how did you get started? And you go through the whole sure. usual questions. And yep. those, that's fine. Uh, and then they ask you some more specific questions. And at the end of these meetings, I can't help but feel most of the time that I did not help them at all. <laughs> we sat and were pleasant to each other. And I could have been writing a script and they could have been writing a script. Right. And everything I said was highly personal, not useful, not applicable to their lives. And then they walk away thinking at best, wow, what a swell guy. At yeah, worst, there's. Wow, well, I didn't get anything out of that. There's no like, way for somebody to replicate the path that you took precisely. Yeah, or you have someone who's, as the British say, is an asshole. 
someone who just likes to ask questions and then never take advice. I have never heard the phrase or the word asshole. Yes, there are a lot. I just heard that. A British friend said that's what they say in London. Asshole. Asshole. Who just suck up your time. Wow. Asking you for advice. And they're not really going to do it and the advice is applicable to anything. Yeah. And so like I went through dozens of these meetings and at a certain point I was like, this isn't effective and people aren't even achieving what their goals are. This Mm. is just wasting our time. Mm -hmm. So if we could set up a system where it actually benefits people Mm. and that's simple, it could be replicated, then you could do something with it. Right. And so I studied uh, a particular book called The Diamond Cutter that I think is brilliant because it is so simple but so difficult to understand. Right. If you read The Diamond Cutter, it's like, oh yeah, one plus one is two, it seems to make sense. And yet, very few people in the world actually operate by that. Uh, very few people operate by the principles uh, of the diamond cutter and of giving to receive. And we sort of have heard that as Christians, as a Christian culture. We've heard it in like as a God belief. If you give, you're a good person and the God will reward you. Um, and there's the Beatles, right? And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of like this great wheel of life that spins around, but we don't really think about it. And we don't think about how we can apply it in actual steps. So the Diamond Cutter uh, by Geshe Michael Roach, based off of Lord Buddha's Diamond Cutter Sutra, actually goes in depth about uh, problems in business and how to fix them. But most people don't want to read the Diamond Cutter. So um, there's a shorter form, which is a class on how karma works that goes into very, very specific detail about karma and the laws of karma in a brilliant way that you can read again and again, and it'll break it down through different schools in Buddhism. But most people don't even want to do that. So then there's an even shorter form, which is just four steps. And really, the more you know about the other forms, the more the four steps work. But if you don't know the other steps, if you don't know the other form, it was reduced down into these four steps for people just so they can have at least a clue of the beginning, middle, and end of how this thing could work and how you can actually get what you want. And what are what are these four steps, Arn? So I'm going to go one, two, three, four. Number one is to set a goal. Number two is to find someone else with that goal. Number three is to help them out. Number four is to rejoice. Now, breaking that down, mm. what does that mean? Number one, setting a goal means finding something very specific to you that you want to achieve that you can reduce to one sentence. The simpler and the easier you can keep in your mind, the better. It has to be something you could shout out in the middle of the night unprompted. It has to be something that you don't have. Mm. It's not a paragraph. It's one sentence. And guess what? If you achieve it, you can go back and add stuff later. Right. But keep the mind as focused as possible and try to think of one thing. Now that you have that thing in your mind, Mm. where's your community Mm. find your community of other people who want that same thing very simple right yes and that's the beauty of buddhism the things they're so simple sometimes people ignore them they go yeah 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 and it's like yeah but you're not doing it (laughs) it's simple but 99 percent of people go yeah 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 the love you you know give is a kind you'll receive yeah yeah sure 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 and they go around being selfish, and they wonder why their lives are miserable. Mm. And so it's like, all right, this is very simple, but now how can we apply this? So you've set your goal and you found your community. You're going to focus on helping 
one person, preferably a few, but let's start off with one, in a consistent way. So can you find someone who you can help in a consistent way? Mm. And that consistency is like working out of the gym. Is it going to be once a month, once a week, once a day? But whatever it is, it's something you can stick to Hmm. and do it consistently. And that plants a seed of consistency in your mind. Hmm. When rather than do a whole bunch of stuff one month and then not do anything for a year, which is generally how people work out in the gym and generally how people deal with their lives. They're like, Delay, delay, procrastinate. Then the night before the test or before taxes are due, they cram everything together. They work out and they injure themselves. And they, <laughs> yeah. Working out doesn't just do anything for me. And it's like you worked out once before you had to before summer started, and you got yourself injured, and you're complaining that you know going to the gym doesn't do anything. Maybe it's the way you're working out. Right. You know, maybe it's the way you're approaching your career that. It's not working. It isn't necessarily giving. It's consistently working out. It's consistently giving that then builds a muscle inside of you. Cultivating habits. Yeah. It would be better to do a very small, consistent thing than to do a huge action once a year or once every several months and then wait for a result. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's what we do most of our lives. Mm. We feel we're very selfish. We think about ourselves. Mm. All of a sudden, we have like these mild epiphanies that happen, mm. and then we're giving in kind for this short burst of time. Right. Then we stop, and then we go, I'm such a giving person. And it's like, yeah, for those five minutes, yeah. for that one day out of the 365 days, or for even the 10 days out of the 365 days you were giving. But can would it be better to be giving a cup of coffee or a dollar once a day for 365 days than giving $100 at the end of the year? Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, after you have committed to doing that, then you do it. You actively just do the thing uh, and you commit to it and you do it consistently. Uh, And then after you do that, you have to rejoice. And this is a step that most people don't want to do. They think it's a joke or they think it's like feeling good about yourself. You have to rejoice because what's going to happen is that we have such low self-esteem. Our mind goes back to thinking we're pieces of crap. And once that starts... It reduces, it reduces all the good we've done to just, oh, that doesn't mean anything. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And then it reduces the power of those uh, mental seeds. Hmm. So you have to rejoice after you do the action at the end of the day on a consistent basis. And that grows that quicker. It grows it a lot quicker. Well, isn't the, isn't the rejoicing almost a Pavlovian trick, right? You have to reward yourself for positive behaviors, Yes. Uh, there's so many things in life. Go ahead. Otherwise, you're not going to want to do it consistently if you don't associate it with a pleasant feeling. Right. And so many negative things in this world grant us a temporary kick like that, whether yeah. it's frivolous sex or drugs or alcohol, nicotine, you name it. We all know how we can get it. Social media now. Ah, I got a hundred likes on this. Uh, what was that? Let's deconstruct that. And it was all very fast and quick and easy and a quick dopamine hit. And uh, doing hard work, difficult things, uh, putting yourself aside is not easy, especially in this society, which is sort of generation narcissist, uh, narcissist world here. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that the pausing to reflect and to be 
maybe maybe it's the word rejoice that people have a problem with. It 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 has kind of a weird religious because we're also like in this age of irony, aren't we? Right? Like everything's like half of an eye roll, and what's anything matter? And well, you know, we're all just corpses spinning around a sun anyway. What's anything? You know, so. Uh, I love it though. I think it's really positive, and uh, this is this is a nice shot in the arm for me here today too. So I hope that this is more valuable than just a regular old one-on-one Oren, because uh, we can make sure some other people hear this. I know our our writers group uh, hopefully will give this a listen. So a shout out to the the little uh, dramatist guild community that you uh, put together, Oren. And the group is designed with those four principles in mind, right? Because if we're going to practice what we preach, the group should have that mm. underneath the pinnings of it, which is why we ask for donations at the end mm-hmm. so we give to other groups. Right. It's not because I like collecting people's money. <laughs> it's not because I like going, but because if we want to keep this going and if we want to see our projects succeed, the most difficult thing about mental imprints to realize is that the job you have and the money you receive are two separate mental seeds. You can be very, very busy and completely broke, and you could be have you can have nothing to do and get a million dollars a day. Yeah, a lot of people do. <laughs> and the, the way the mind and the way the world works is we think they're associated because most of us are middle class. We go to work and then we get a paycheck and we associate that. But in deep uh, logic, in deep knowledge, those are two separate seeds. Like being a good farmer and not being hungry are two separate things. Mm. And so you need to cultivate both. You need to both be the good farmer of your own mental seeds of creativity and then ensure through generosity that you don't end up being broke. And then you end up with a job that pays you well and pays you at an increase. And if you don't, you end up with this scattershot thing of I'm busy, but I'm broke or like I have nothing to do, but I'm sort of getting money. And you you end up feeling schizophrenic because we associate the two together when in fact they're not. So we do these things. We we do these things in a very consistent way again and again. We uh, define what we want. No ands. We plan. Find someone similar who wants similar things and develop a plan for helping them. We act, carry out the plan while keeping in, keeping in mind how you will be an example for others in your actions and results. This is a ripple effect. And at the end, you rejoice. And people pick up on this energy, and it feeds, and it grows itself. And most people who hear this aren't going to do it. But the few that have done it, you see the shift within a year in their career and life. You see it. Rob, you know, who we both know, is now working consistently as a director. Six, seven months ago, he was asking me, you know, for advice for how he could move to L.A. But by the way, he had to pay for his, his girlfriend stuff. And so he needed five thousand dollars a month. Right. And I was like, what? I was like, that's that's a lot to just you're going to plop down in L.A. and you're already going to be behind the eight ball. Yeah. Well, L.A. is where it's at. Right. That's where you need a career. And I was like, well, first off. L.A. is is not where it's at. You've said that to yourself and built this story up about L.A. being the key because you're unhappy with being in New York City. So getting out of that ignorant frame of thinking, let's work with what you have right in front of you. You're located here. Yeah, right. You're, you have groups of people 
who are a part of your community who have similar projects. Help them out, read the diamond cutter, and just see what happens. You've been doing this your way for 30 years or however many years, and you're in this position. Just try this for one year. Just what do you have to lose? The frustration of doing the same thing over and over again and not getting the reward. Yeah, right, 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 right. Where? So, yeah, go so ahead, Arn. Completely transformed. Another, there's been a few people who have like done this, and you see the transformation happen before your eyes, and it's kind of miraculous uh, because most of the time they forget that you know they were even doing anything. They think, oh yeah, I've just got lucky. And you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you you know, and that's the last trick. If you do this, and you do change, and you will if you do it. What society does and what your memory will do, and it's the trick of the devil. Uh, you know, even though Buddhism doesn't believe in devils, but we'll say it's the trick of the devil. Mara. They'll for, they'll make you forget that you even did that, and you'll think like, "Well, I'm just more talented than everyone. That's <laughs> why I'm." And I just happen to hit a lucky streak, and it was my agent. And we'll make all these excuses outside of ourselves rather than acknowledging the deeper power of the steps that we took. And you don't have to tell people about these steps. In fact, it's better if you don't. Mm. You have to go around proselytizing, keep it to yourself, mm. and just practice these steps quietly. And you will see your reality change without having to create a vision board, without having to announce it on Facebook, without having to spread an Instagram <laughs> post about how your life is changing and so wonderful. The, your world will change subtly and with very little effort. People will begin offering you things. And then that's beautiful because now you're no longer running and struggling and striving. Things are just arriving in the flow. They're arriving at your door and you're like, yes, I'll take that. Yeah, I don't want that, but I'll farm that out to someone else. And then you can become a good farmer of your own mental seeds. And then at a certain point, you can pass it along to someone else. This is wonderful. Look, I'm sold. You know I'm sold. I'm a part of the the writer's group that you run and uh, have really enjoyed that over over the years. Pardon me? Are you rejoicing? Ah, that's a good. That's exactly it. That is exactly it. And I'm going to think about that very heavily uh, offline. Obviously, uh, so give me an example. You know, as we wind down here in our last ten minutes, how, how do you? What do you do to rejoice? What does that look like? Take a bath. You uh, <laughs> light some candles. I mean, you dance. Do a song in your heart. Sing. Write. How good? Write and see the ripple effect of this. Hmm. As you go to bed at night. You lay your head down. Our minds focus on certain things that will then go into sleep for the next six hours and sort of meditate on it. Mm. Rather than watching TV, if your mind, if you can do a review of your day and the actions you did with wisdom throughout the day and really rejoice and feel good about that, that plant, that's a very powerful seed. Now, how do you do that? Well, think about the effect of you helping someone else out and then them getting a job and then them getting promoted and becoming a showrunner, and then becoming a millionaire, and buying their mom a mansion, and lifting up their entire community, and then having kids, and teaching them how to be creative, and then speaking at college graduations, and then winning a bunch of prizes, and then sort of becoming their own network, or Oprah having their own network, and then becoming a force in media, and knowing that you played a part in putting that initial brick down in the foundation of the empire that is Oprah, or the next Oprah. The next Oprah is in your community. They're among your friends and family right now. 
And so you visualize that brick through the action you did. You put that brick down and now you have created the forbidden city or a giant castle or an empire and rejoice in the ripple effect of that. So you get very creative. You visualize, you see the ripple effect expanding into a wave, the wave becoming a tsunami of good fortune and goodness and how this person will travel out into the world. And even better if they're able to take these four steps with them as this tsunami grows and then spread it out around the world. Because it's not just about wealth, it's about wisdom. Because if you have wisdom, you can recreate the wealth. If you don't, then it's sort of like the lottery or a fluke. Ah. It's sort of like, oops, I, I got famous and rich. And then a lot of people freak out because either uh, they don't believe where they sh- they deserve it. They have survivor's remorse because most of their friends don't make it. Yep. They don't understand where it came from, so they become scared and try to replicate it, but they don't really know what they're doing. Mm. They just do the same thing again and again with diminishing returns. Right. And they become very bitter, so that their success becomes a poison to them. You hear a lot of stories of people who win the lottery and regret it. What if you could win the lottery, but you knew where it came from, so you could reproduce and spread it to your friends? So it didn't become a curse. That's incredible. It didn't become a fear that like, oh no, how am I going to reproduce this? Or, oh no, I don't deserve this. And guess what? We live in a very narcissistic society. And people think that means, oh, we have a high sense of self and self-esteem. No, narcissism, according to psychology, means the opposite. Mm. It means you have a very low self-esteem, which is why you keep looking in the mirror for validation. Because you can't feel validated unless you look at something that that confirms it. So you're constantly looking, taking selfies, looking, checking for any imperfection because you feel deep inside like you don't deserve it to live on this earth. If you had a high self-esteem, then a lot of our problems will be solved, but we don't. So we have a very low self-esteem. So when we get something good, there is a human instinct and there's a part of us that begins to feel guilty or bad or shameful or question why we got it. Mm. And it messes with us and it plays a mind game on us and it destroys even the best thing we could ever receive. The gorgeous supermodel wife. Why is she with me? Right. Why is he with me? Are they sleeping around? Why is that guy looking at her? Like, oh, I still talk to her. I'm going to go beat up that guy. The seeds of jealousy and angst. The seeds of angst and jealousy and anger and greed and selfishness will rear their ugly heads. It's just if you have a lot of money, it rears it stronger. It comes back twice as strong. And so I would imagine, especially if the money is ill gotten or a bit of a fluke, you don't know how to manage it. You don't value it. Yeah. Anything, a good car, an inheritance, a beautiful partner. If you don't have self-esteem, you will destroy it. And if you don't know where it comes from, you will destroy it. And so the question is, can we both create something with wisdom and then improve our self-esteem by rejoicing? Ah. So you improve your self-esteem, you do this action of wisdom, and you complete an upward spiral. You're rejoicing, you're, I'm a good person, you start feeling good about yourself in these very subtle ways that aren't noticeable, but you exude it as an aura. I love this. And then you're acting with wisdom, and you know you can reproduce this, and then you don't feel bad about winning the lottery. You're like, I deserve this. I've Literally, I've done the steps. <laughs> I've done these steps. This is the result of it. I'm not magical, but these are the results. You plant a seed in the ground, and then six months later, you get a fruit. That isn't magic. I, I, I put in the work. 
And so if you can reproduce it and you have the self-esteem to know it isn't magic and you deserve it, then you are on an upward spiral and you can reproduce and do anything you want in your life. Those are the two, those are the two problems we have to overcome. It's not just about getting the job. It's fighting the ignorance and fighting the lack of self-esteem. And what the four steps do is day by day, they counteract that. You do deserve it. You deserve everything you want, unless you're a serial killer. But you do deserve <laughs> All right. This has been amazing. And we're high self-esteem. I'm not talking to you. Yeah, right. Maybe go jump off a bridge if you're a serial killer. Uh, Oren, go get help. Oren, uh, we're winding down here. I'm so grateful that you were able to come on my podcast. Get this. Uh, It's at uh, getthispodcast.com. We're on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. If you go to getthispodcast.com, you can find me. I'm Kevin Kautzman. Oren, two things where can people learn more about these four steps? Uh, you mentioned the Diamond Cutter Sutra. Is this available online where you buy a book? You can buy it on Amazon. You can listen to it. You can read it. You can read it on your Kindle. Um, there's also Mandala Dharma. If you want more deeper insight into the actual Diamond Cutter Sutra of Lord Buddha in the class, there's also Asian Classics Institute, which is an old school site that has all the listings of the traditional classes taught in Sarame Monastery, Buddhist Tibetan Monastery. And then there's Knowledge Base, uh, which also has, it has more than new classes that are being taught around the world right now. It's very interesting. Buddhism is booming around the world, just not in America. So when I go to a lot of classes, it's more and more like foreign or people from other countries. Um, and last time I was in Arizona, it was like, maybe 30% Americans. And someone was like, oh my God, there's never been this many Americans in years. Wow. And it was maybe like 30 or 40% Chinese hmm. and 30 or 40% Europeans. Usually it's, it's becoming more and more Chinese people because they understand it's sort of in their culture a little bit. They understand karma and wisdom and they like know a little bit more of how it works and they want to work it. And to us, it's a little bit more foreign. But uh, I think we can bring it back here in America and we can bring it back by people applying it to their lives and getting what they want. And then, because they have the self-esteem, they know where it comes from, they will spread it to other people. And then you'll naturally maybe be curious about the Heart Sutra. Maybe you'll come back and be curious about these other things that also Lord Buddha spoke about. Maybe you'll be curious, now that you have the money and the job, what else I could do about my body? I want my body to feel better. I don't wanna have money and then be in a wheelchair or to be stooped over a laptop and, and be in poor health, there's stuff you can do with your body. Yeah, and right. There's stuff you can do with improving your looks, having to deal with uh, transforming anger into mm. other things. And then you begin all going along the path. I'm going to say something uh, that may seem to contradict everything I've said before, uh, which is generally speaking – we don't want to do things unless we have a great tragedy going that happens in our life. Wow. Generally speaking, if we're sort of puttering along and we're mildly dissatisfied, but we're surviving and we're mildly disinterested, but we're getting along and we're mildly in this relationship, but it doesn't suck. We may break up with the relationship. We may switch jobs, but we're, we're very hesitant and reticent to switch our life focus and to switch our principles. And so, Although I do want everyone who wants answers to at least give us a try, 
I will say it's very hard unless someone experiences like a traumatic incident or tragedy in their life, whether personal, a professional, or something that shakes them up. And if you don't have that, if that hasn't happened to you while listening to this, at least in Buddhism, they say you can go back to the last tragedy you have and meditate on that. Oh, wow. That's the last tragedy. And think about, I thought working would lead to these results. Mm -hmm. Or I thought loving this person would mean they'd be here forever or would be faithful to me. I thought that doing A would lead to B, and it didn't. And then we're thrown for a loop. We go like, holy crap. How did that happen? Yeah. And then we question ourselves. I'm a good person. I work hard. Blah, blah. We go through a whole list of reasons, and it throws us for a loop. That's the moment when you can change. That little window when that crack happens in our bland facade of normal reality, which is 100% bullshit, but we sort of coast along it. When that crack happens of a tragedy or something that like jars us, makes us wake up from our slumber yeah. that we live through day by day, right. that's the moment where you can jump in really deep and get something a good lesson if you can't if you're not going through that then go back to the last tragedy and sort of relive it and try to find that crack again try to find that area where like oh this is a moment when i thought everything i had learned was bullshit that i've been taught in school and it was all lies because guess what most of the stuff you were taught in school about the way reality works is a lie yeah 100 percent. i was talking about that yeah Aaron, you are my oprah and I love it, and I really appreciate the the, the wisdom and sharing this with, you know, uh, with uh, the listeners to this podcast, and that you're you're such a great guest. Uh, I always enjoy it. I hope you'll come back on another time soon. This is a good chance for you to give your plugs. Uh, I know you you're producing on Evil. That show is airing now. Where can people find you online? Uh, I'm not. I mean, just at Orange Squire at Orange Squire at Twitter. Or just Google my name, you know, stuff will pop up. Uh, but yeah, Evil's on Thursday on CBS, and The Good Fight is on CBS All Access. Uh, I have a few plays going up. Uh, Wonderful World, Louis Armstrong musicals going up at Miami, uh, Miami New Drama in March and, eight, and April, and then a few other commissions that are in the work, including uh, Gullah Geechee, a cultural thing that's going down in South Carolina in the spring as well. And that's pretty much what's on my plate right now awesome well thanks so much for coming on Oren and we'll talk again soon this has been Get This the show about things people love peace peace thank you